to uh, the scripture reading for the morning is in Genesis, the 11th chapter. Genesis, the 11th chapter, and we'll read little portions of it, not the whole thing, but little portions of it. John and I, well, had the privilege of being in their home yesterday with the ladies, but uh, uh, John and I had a couple little side conversations and one of those side conversations, he was noting that his, uh, one of his number one spiritual counselors at one point had recommended that he be in a church where God's Word is esteemed, highly esteemed, regarded, and considered to be the truth. So we do, don't we? We believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of God's Word. Without that, we are completely rudderless. Thank God He has given us His Word. All Scripture is therefore inspired and is profitable as we read it, hear it, and understand it for our sanctification. We begin reading in the 11th chapter with the first verse. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And then down to verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, or Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishkah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. Let's pray. Father, would you use our thoughts for our well-being as you turn us toward being more and more responsible to you in all that we do. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I call it, a pride, I call it pride and a peak. How do these two passages seem to fit together? They seem not to fit together unless we understand that God is doing something extraordinary in all the writing of His Word. Just recently, Plain Wayne Herring and I were on the telephone. We talk a good bit the way Bob and I talk a good bit on the telephone. 
Wayne was acknowledging hearing someone having read a large portion of Scripture with all those Bible names in it, struggling to get them out properly and wondering what in the world all these names have to do with anything, the 10th chapter of Genesis. I don't think I could tell you that I have an understanding of how to deal with a passage like that. But some passages are pretty clear. And God is doing some extraordinary explaining to us in some passages. And this seems to be one. Pride and a peak. Let's see if we can tell what's going on here. First point I might mention to you is this. uh, Pride and punishment. That would almost make the title of a really good book, wouldn't it? Pride and Punishment. Those two words seem to go together, don't they? The way things were back in the days before God confused the language. People were of one language, of one speech. One man said literally they were of one lip and one word, meaning that everybody spoke and understood what the others were saying in time before the confusion came. But the Lord came down and took a look at what they were doing. It is an anthropomorphism to say that the Lord came down. That is, He's speaking in terms that we better understand. The Lord came down and take, to take a look at what they were doing. And the problem was pride with these people in this city attempting to build this tower. What's pride? I looked it up. Instead of giving you an offhand definition, I looked it up for what we think, coming out of Webster's Dictionary, pride really is. It's this kind of thing. Inordinate self-esteem, conceit, insolence, arrogance, disdain. Those are pretty heavy words. These people are wrapped up in their own self-esteem and they are arrogant and insolent. And as a result of that, they are telling each other, let's build us a tower up into the heavens and make for ourselves a name. Self-aggrandizement. They were putting themselves in a position of God. Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, the same kind of thing. You shall be as God if you simply eat of this tree of understanding. And we find the same story going on in this passage. In fact, it is, isn't it, the story of all of the history of mankind. That is, it's a story of pride on one side, of one part of human, uh, of the human race. And it is the story on another side of God dealing graciously with His people. This is almost like a paradigm that describes all of human Uh, history the tower of Babel distrusting providence in their pride it may have been uh, been designed as some kind of defensive uh, structure we're not exactly true and I read some commentaries on it and they differed as to exactly all of the nuances that may have gone into the thoughts of the people building this tower Maybe it was a defensive structure. It may also have been a religious event in their lives whose top may reach into heaven 
might be a good way of expressing what the verse says. The top of which we're going to ascend into heaven. And we shall be as God. They were showing their power to reach unto God and to be as God. It also may have been an expression of a centralization of power. Uh, They are going to be superior to all those who are around them. Through the Bible hereafter, Babel, Babel if you choose to say, I don't care, Babylon stands forth right through to the end of Revelation, the book of Revelation, for materialistic, humanistic opposition to God. Whatever the nuances may have been, this was a revolutionary attempt toward self-promotion, toward pride, toward arrogance, toward insolence, toward self-aggrandizement. They were making themselves a name. Here then is the event that is also a figure of man's boast in opposition to submission to God. What other manifestations of pride could there be? Well, we are proud people, aren't we? Pride seems to be an umbrella describing man's sin since the very first sin. And the word pride could be an umbrella describing what lures you and me most into our pet sins. You don't have to tell anybody, okay, but you know, I'm, I'm stated supply at this little church in Raymond, Mississippi. We might have 40 people there on a Sunday. We are really big. That little community of Raymond, don't tell anybody I said this, okay, is very prideful. I didn't really realize that. Why are they so prideful? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but there are two or three little reasons that look very obvious. Did you know that Raymond was to be the capital of the state of Mississippi? It was supposed to be. The railroads railroads back then crossed right in Raymond. Did you know that Raymond was at some of the epicenter of of the war between the states as uh, the troops were moving from Vicksburg toward Jackson? And Raymond uh, sets up its battlements. A great battle occurred at Raymond, Mississippi. Did you know that some of Mississippi's most well-known politicians through the years have come from Raymond, Mississippi? Well, when you stop and think about it, you say, huh, they do. Do you know, did you know that Mississippi's, I'm sorry to tell you, but Mississippi's largest community college is in Raymond, Mississippi, Hines Community with its satellite campuses? I never knew that a little community could be so, so proud of itself But you and I are equally as proud of ourselves because it is at the heart of the nature of sin. What Adam and Eve chose to do might be called epistemological rebellion, epistemology. 
philosophy 101 all those years ago, epistemology, the theory of how we know anything, epistemological rebellion, Adam and Eve, given the opportunity, said, I've got a better idea to God. You and I, in every sin that we commit, are saying, I've got a better idea. I know that God said X for everybody, but Y is for me. I think God especially is pleased with me. He's happy that He chose me to be one of His people. Because I'm a little bit better than most of those folk around me, aren't we? After all, we are Presbyterians, aren't we? Can I give you my tease? I, I got, I, I got a, an unsigned, I got an unsigned reprimand when I used this in Sunday school one time several years ago. Please be patient with me. It's a tease. It's just a tease. Believe me, it's a tease. There are more Baptists in Mississippi than there are people. <laughs> there are going to be more Baptists in heaven than Presbyterians. That's not so funny, is it? But once we get there, we'll all be Presbyterians. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy for us, though, to take something like a tease like that and puff ourselves up. And you scurrilous rascal, that's exactly the way you are. We're very prideful people. And that pride expresses itself in insolence. We're insolent before God. We are self-aggrandizing before God we are our own religious target before God we think of ourselves in ways that we ought not I had the privilege of speaking at my high school whatever class reunion it was I can't remember four or five years ago and uh, I ended up <laughs> being accused of one of my classmates as she said Presbyterians are always talking about sin only because the Bible always talks about your sin. You and I may take the advantage from a seeming higher ground to talk about these people with this story that we heard when we were in the second grade Sunday school and say, what were they thinking? Did they think they could do this? Didn't they expect God to deal with it? What are you thinking? Don't you expect God to deal with it if you insist on being prideful the way these people were? This is not all about you. This is all about God. This is not all about North Point Presbyterian Church. This is not all about being a Presbyterian. This is all about God. And because of the sin of these people, God punishes. God was very patient. As you think back through it just a little bit, you'll think about the patience of God in response to the sin of these people. He gave them time to rethink. I mean, they're building this tower up into the heavens. What are they thinking? God chose to disperse them rather than take their lives, moderating their punishment to a degree. God has various means and effectual ones to battle and defeat the projects of proud men. 
who set themselves against God. God is very patient with people all around and God seems to be especially patient with you and me who should be understanding our sin all the better and coming to terms with it. But He eventually acted. He eventually acted. And even in His action, He was showing patience because He dispersed them. It was a confounding not only of their purposes, that is, let's show our great self-honor, and God, God came to punish and introduce confusion and madness and discord. And that was the very thing that they wanted to avoid. We want to make ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And they received in God's punishment exactly what they were trying to avoid. God interfered with these actions of these people to deal with their sin. One man said, it is just with God to bury those names in the dust which are raised by sin. It was just for God to bury their names in the dust which was being raised by their sin. Philo Judeus, an early historian, said this. It's not inspired, but he may be right. They were engraving everyone his name upon a brick as a perpetual memorial. And God dealt with their sin, and they should repent. And God deals with sin, and we should repent. Let us learn to provoke one another toward good instead of bad. To live in that community was a provoking toward evil before God. Everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing it. To the men yesterday, I quoted one of my favorite little expressions again in all of life. I have these little hooks that I hang on little expressions or little sayings or, or little things that helped me a lot. And one came out of John Newton. John Newton, who continued in some of his sins, very unexpectedly after his conversion, John Newton, John Newton, he continued to work slave ships after his conversion. Imagine that. What was he thinking? Let me tell you what he was thinking. Here's the quote. Custom, example, and self-interest had blinded my eyes. Custom, example, and self-interest had blinded my eyes. In the community of Meridian, custom, example, and self-interest at times will blind our eyes. The people of Babel may have had many citizens who by custom, example, and self-interest had their eyes blinded. That's not who we are. We open our eyes. We turn the light on our own pride. And we understand that we have no right for self-promotion. Let us encourage one another. Psalm 122 I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when people all around me said, let's go worship. Let's get there. Let's encourage one another in spiritual things. 
Let us be encouragers of each other. When we see the grace of God being so appropriate in another person's life, let's get to worship. How about that? Isn't that a wonderful encouragement? Isaiah 2. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that, that we may walk in His paths. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me be your encourager, and let you be my encourager. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. Abandoning custom, example, and self-interest that will take us away from the worship of God. Well, the first point, and there are only two. Don't get all labored. There are only two. I'm sort of a simplistic thinker when it comes to organizing things like this. There are only two. Pride and punishment. Point number two is this. A peak and a promise. A peak and a promise in verses 29 and 30. Hmm. What's going on here? Let me tell you about session meetings and presbytery meetings to get you drawn into a little bitty point here. In a session meeting, we never record actions not taken. <laughs> At a presbytery meeting, we don't record motions not passed. <laughs> God is, is taking up some very valuable go gospel, I mean, Bible space here, and I don't mean to sound sacrilegious. But I mean, this is, this is the, the book. And in this, big, in this book, he's telling us about something not happening. Really? Yes, he says. And Sarah was barren. She had no child. And that's not the first time we have this reference to Sarah's barrenness. Sarah, I should say, until her name is changed by God. God is highlighting that only He can accomplish His promise. And we go through from this point forward, Abram and Sarah, Sarai trying to accomplish that which is promised by God in wrong ways. In wrong ways. Chapter 15, Abram said, O Lord, God wilt Thou give me since I am childless, will you give me a son? In chapter 16, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and as a result of which the two of them conspired. How are we going to work this out? God has made this big old promise to us, and so I'm getting too old to have children, Sarah is saying. Abram is saying, I'm getting too old to have children. So what in the world? Hey, she has an idea. Why don't I give you my maid so that she can give birth to a son to our family? And even as the Bible describes it, she says, she will give birth on my knees. That is, as soon as the <coughs> baby is born, the baby will be handed to me and we'll have a heritage. Isn't that a good idea? Isn't that a wonderful way to accomplish what God has promised to do? Sarai was barren. 
As one man said, her barrenness was the long and silent trial in the life of Abraham. The long and silent trial in the life of Abraham. But God was working above, beyond, and with His established order to provide the continuance of the promise of salvation. But Sarai was barren. To Adam and Eve, God had made the promise in the third chapter. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To Abel in Genesis 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. The, the promise to, Abram, to, uh, to Adam of this covenant relationship that God will establish. The promise of God to Abel through faith to be his Savior, even though he's murdered by his brother. The promise in the Noahic covenant that God would be the Savior. Genesis 6, verse 9, The Lord saw that wickedness, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God saved Noah. And God gave a covenant promise that never again would all of life be destroyed. And the promise is in that rainbow that God gave. The sign of the promise. And God is giving a promise to Abram and Sarai here. But they sin in attempting to force it. And yet God is gracious in giving them the solution to the dilemma. Not of the illegitimate child but of the child himself, Isaac, is born. God's works of providence are as holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And God fulfills his promise to be a redeemer. Even in the midst of Abram and Sarai taking illegal, illicit, wrong ways of solving the problem, tell you a little secret in the uh, teaching of ethics. If you get this little secret, you don't have to take an ethics class. I'll give you two sentences. You never have the right to do wrong. Wow. That is profound. Mike Speedy Biggs helped me with that one many years ago. You never have the right to do wrong. And second... You never have the right to give someone else to do wrong. Poof. Sanctification from Sunday school, standing on two pillars. Just do what's right. Abram and Sarah, just do what's right. But they didn't. But let me tell you that in this peak right here, why did God tell us about something not happening? In this peak right here, we have as though it's a neon light. Blink, blink, blink. We've got a peak that God is telling us that He's going to fulfill His promise. Blink, blink. And He did. He fulfilled His promise. Continuing His covenant blessing to His people. Running through as we said Sunday, uh, Friday night, running right through each of these covenantal unfoldings. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And God fulfills it again shortly hereafter in the pages of the birth of a son to Abraham and Isaac. They were too old. This kind of thing doesn't happen. But God extraordinarily fulfilled His promise. A peek. A peek at what's going on. And a promise here. God's salvation in God's way, not by man's efforts. That leads us to a little idea or two. And we're getting close to the end. Stay with me. Hang in there. (laughs) Hang with me. We're getting toward the end. Man cannot, by self-promoting, establish his own righteousness. Man cannot, by his own self-promoting, establish his own righteousness. Our relationship to God is totally dependent upon God graciously fulfilling the terms of His covenant promise in our lives individually by His grace. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not, of, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You never have the right to do wrong. We benefit from the graciousness of God to accomplish that which you and I cannot accomplish. Throughout the Old Testament into the New, for the history of mankind, the problem has been the same. There have been two lines of people. The solution has been the same. There is one gospel of grace. Abram and Sarai, in spite of their sin, experience the gracious fulfillment of God's promise that He had made covenantally toward them. Your line will continue and God will bless that line. That is very, very reassuring. The Bible all hangs together under one gigantic concept. God saves His people. They don't save themselves. We've got a Savior who lived perfectly that we might have imputed to us His righteousness, who died heinously, that He might have imputed to Him the guilt for our sin, who was raised from the dead to demonstrate that we too shall be raised from the dead. That's about the best news that we can hear. What a day! To hear that God all the way from the third chapter of Genesis into the fourth, into the eleventh, into the seventeenth, and all all the way through the Bible to the very end, there is a singular story that God is telling for the sake of getting your attention and my attention. 
I will be your God and you will be my people. I will pitch my tent in your midst. Emmanuel, God with us. And we shall be in Christ now and to eternity. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe it? All our hope is sincerely laid on a peak and a promise that God said, I'm going to do it for you. And He's done it. He has done it. I'll I'll close by admitting that I'm no Pollyanna kind of person and you're not either. I struggle. I struggle with can I really put all my trust in this gospel? Lord, help my weak belief. I admit that one of my favorite pieces of literature is Pilgrim's Progress. And remember when Christian got to the river of death, remember what happened to him? He put his foot in that river and he couldn't find his footing. And then he looked to the celestial city and he saw the cross and he found his footing. You understand that I want to be able to tell all our dear people in Raymond exactly the same thing. And our ruling elder, as previously mentioned, who's going through very bad aggressive cancer, very bad... This is true. This is true. The Lord has promised. And by His blessing of faith, we too will put our foot in the river of death. And as we keep our sight on the cross... We'll find sure footing. Do you believe this? By God's blessing, I think I do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to bless us extraordinarily. We pray that you would make our weak faith stronger. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.